Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Have a Little Insight, the podcast where we share people's personal stories, lived experience, and expertise in the hopes of creating a kinder, compassionate, and more understanding world. This week, we are diving into the topic of autism. And we spoke to Michael Barton. Michael was diagnosed at a very young age and was actually nonverbal until he was three, which is hard to believe when I start to tell you right now about his accomplishments. He is an accomplished speaker on the topic of autism, Asperger's, and neurodiversity, focusing on the positive aspects of being autistic, raising awareness, and giving people hope for the future. He has authored two books, It's Raining Cats and Dogs and A Different Kettle of Fish, which help illuminate the mind of people you might know who are autistic to help us understand a little bit more how they think. He's a professional e-commerce data analyst, one of 16% of the autistic population that's employed full-time, and he's also an accomplished musician playing jazz piano, bass guitar, drums, and percussion. And folks, I've seen the YouTube videos. This man is very talented. It was a pleasure speaking with Michael. He really opened up my mind to just what it's like to be autistic. And a small disclaimer for anybody listening out there, if you have a family member or someone close to you has autism, Michael admits that he is on the high functioning end, which allows him to be this bridge and insight for others. Um, There is a spectrum to autism and different levels require different degrees of support. With that in mind, it was personally incredible for me to discover what people are capable of with the right amount of support and understanding in this world. So let's dive right in. Everybody, here's Michael. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hi, we're so happy to have you. Um, So maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, that sort of thing. Right. So obviously I've been alive for a bit now, so I'm going to try and keep it quite short. <laughs> Obviously, as a child, I'd start off my education in a special unit away from mainstream school because I was non-verbal, not speaking until I was three years old. So my parents knew I was different from an early age and needed extra support. Um, I then went into mainstream school with support where I was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. It's not a term I particularly like because I don't consider myself to be disordered, but well, there you have it. That's a diagnostic criteria. And so, yeah, I continued to progress through mainstream school. Uh, I ended up getting good grades because academically I was very capable, but obviously one of the things with autism is that we need to be explicitly taught social skills, which other people seem to pick up intuitively. So the whole social world was a bit of a minefield for me when I was a child. <clears throat> Nonetheless, by the time I got to university, aged 18 years old, like I got the grades to get in and I had enough of an understanding as to what the social world holds. So actually, as I've been going on in life, university was a better experience for me than it was at school because I was able to just study physics, which is a subject I like and I'm good at, and I'm able to, well, I don't want to say pick my battles, that sounds a bit mean, but I can choose the people that I socialise with and prioritise people with a common interest to me. So it's something I find it helps you get on with them better. 
And then, yeah, I graduated from university and I've been working full time as a data analyst for the past six years. So essentially doing lots of number crunching using Microsoft Excel, SQL, Google Analytics and things which most people tend to not want to get into the nitty gritty and the details of. But that's exactly what my brain is built for. So, yeah, I've got a career as a successful data analyst so far. Yeah, when I was doing a little bit of reading about autism, um, it said, and some of the stuff on your website said, like, you're very literal, very logical, um, very linear minded. And I can imagine with sciences and physics that that does come in very handy. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, in order to be a scientist, you need a very logical and analytical way of thinking, which is exactly how the autistic mind works, certainly in my case and well that's why there's the stereotype of getting autistic people into tech fields and in the scientific world I mean it suits me perfectly and while that may not be the case for all autistic people I mean we're feeling a void where there's always going to be an increasing demand for science and tech and getting into the nitty-gritty where you need our exceptional attention to detail so the jobs are there and we have the skills to fulfill the needs of companies. I was reading too, because your bio says you're a professional e-commerce data analyst, but it said one of 16% of the autistic population that's employed full-time. So is it is it challenging to find employment for, for autistic people? Let me just start by saying, I think anybody who's looked for a job recently will find that it's annoying and difficult. So take aside the disadvantages that being autistic can bring, mostly in their interview process, in my opinion, because well, the interview process gives you an idea mostly of how well you get on with the other person. I mean, that's not well suited for autistic people who are less likely to get jobs which require good social skills in the first place. But as the interview revolves around how well you get on with other people, rather than how good you would be in the job, it leads to a sense of, well, autistic people find it more difficult to get jobs in the first place. I mean, the 16% of autistic employment figure I got was from the National Autistic Society in the UK, which is one of the largest autism-specific charities over here, if you're listening from across the pond. And so, yeah, I mean, that figure comes out because autism, I feel, is a very misunderstood condition and the interview process is weighted towards social skills, even for jobs where you don't need to have great social skills. I mean, I'm much better in a job understanding numbers than I am understanding people. Yeah, I mean, just thinking of that now when you talk about it, interviews are very socially weighted and how you get along interacting with people. And if that's one of the more challenging areas for autistic people, it does naturally, I guess, put you at a disadvantage. And you're right, right off the bat that it's a challenging time for anybody to look for a job. So um, duly noted there. I'm curious if we go back a little bit, you had said autistic people or like the diagnosis is commonly misunderstood. So what do you mean by that? Like where it's misunderstood? Like what are some of the myths around that? <clears throat> that you've experienced or maybe that you can talk to? Well, I've heard numerous myths about autism. I'll start by saying autism is a developmental condition that affects the way a person interacts and relates with 
other people around them. That's the dictionary definition. I mean, one of the main myths going out there about autism is that autistic people lack empathy. So to suggest that we don't care about other people, which is 100% not true. It's just we're more binary in the sense that we're either likely to really care about something like our family and friends and people that are close to us and are less likely to care about things that have nothing to do with us. Or when someone's telling us about problems that I can't see things from their point of view. And it's also very hard for me to fake it as well. So almost giving like a fake apology or fake sympathy, that's something that autistic people really struggle with and don't understand the point. And why would you say, I'm sorry, or that must be difficult to another person when you have no experience of what that's like yourself? Maybe they're putting it on, maybe it's not really that difficult thing to happen, or maybe other people have faced much worse, so they just need to suck it up. I mean, <laughs> sorry for being a bit blunt, but that's the way I feel sometimes. It's just, unless you've directly experienced something like that yourself, it's hard to understand what other people are thinking or what response you're expected to give, regardless of your actual opinion. I can see how the honesty and the bluntness would come across as lack of empathy or not caring when that's just not true. I don't think we're used to that level of honesty in in our world. We're used to like caring and a little bit of kid gloves, even with strangers to a certain extent, everybody's polite. You know, how was your day? Good. And you wave and continue is, on. I would say that that is a stereotype for British as well as Canadian people as well. I've heard the politeness is a stereotype. In other countries, I've heard like being direct is more acceptable. So and you've got to think in those countries, is the autistic way of thinking more accepted? Because I'm sure in other cultures, people are more direct. Yeah. I, I know that they are. I've met people from other cultures. For example, um, one of my close friends, her partner is from India or was from India. They've separated now, but um, he was a lot more direct. And at times it was a little jarring, right? But it's just, it's different culture, different way of operating. And uh, I think it's interesting to think about autism that way too. It's just, it's a different way of operating. It's a different mindset. I think we make more allowances for culture maybe than we do. It's more because culture is visible, like someone can say, True. Oh, I'm Indian or I'm part of this different culture. And then you immediately think, oh, they operate with a slightly different operating system. But because autism is so misunderstood, especially with the stigma surrounding autism, I find that if you say oh, I'm autistic, then people don't quite have that same understanding as to how you're different and how that affects you. So... Maybe we can touch on that outside of empathy. How? What are some of the other differences that you might encounter? Differences with autism. I mean, yeah. Obviously, well, one of the things I like to do is that we have an exceptional attention to detail. So we pick up on things and little details that other people might miss. So, especially a couple of a few weeks back in the UK, our clocks went forward to British summer time and. People that have manual clocks don't always change them right away. I mean, so I mean, that's obviously something that doesn't bother most neurotypical or non autistic people that much, but it's something that still irks me to this day. And it was even to the extent that when I was in school, I was getting very agitated because the clocks had changed. So my operating system was different from other people's and actually got 
thrown out of assembly at school because I was getting upset about the time being wrong, even though it was the school's fault for not putting the clocks back. Right. Interesting. So do you find that, obviously, from that story, those things that um, you have very specific attention to detail, when that detail's not there, that's very frustrating, it sounds like, yes. for you. Yeah. Um, I would imagine, yeah, that's hard for, for other people to understand, too. It's like, well, the clock's different. You know it's different, but it sounds like there's almost like a hyper-focus, which mm-hmm. it sounds like, from what I know, that people look at that as a, a negative aspect. But It really depends on the context. I mean, yeah. sometimes you're expected to... Well, I mean, it boils down to the fact that the filters in our brain work differently to that for other people. So you have an idea of what you think is important and what you think isn't so important. But if we're set on a task which requires an exceptional attention to detail, we're going to outperform you. Huh. So for example when looking at films, for example, autistic people would be great at spotting continuity errors, for example. Right. Yeah, because you have that linear attention to detail. You might, like, um, I imagine that things like film editing and making sure things go in a straight line and stuff like that, that, as generally speaking, people who are diagnosed with autism would excel at. It's like you said with the numbers and math and physics, science, when Game of Thrones first came out and it was a big (laughs) sensation, I mean, some people would say it is today to an extent, they got lambasted for a scene where on one of the tables, bear in mind this was set hundreds of years ago, someone had left a Starbucks cup on the table. Oh my gosh. I mean, whoever was in charge of doing that was definitely not autistic, I'll say that. (laughs) Well, they weren't paying attention, that's for sure. That's, um, That's definitely for sure. So... When, if we go back a little bit, you say that you went into the regular school system with support. What was going to school like for you? What what does support mean for people who are autistic? I mean, it does vary to an extent depending on people. But in my case, as a child, I had a, well, I initially had a speech and language therapist. As I said, I wasn't talking until I was three years old. But even then, when I did start talking, I caught up pretty quickly. So what most people suggest is that a lot is going in to my brain, but up until then, not much was going out because, well, I didn't feel the need to speak or communicate. I mean, it's hard to remember what I was like when I was a young right. kid, I mean, as most people would agree. So, yeah, the theory is a lot is going in, but not much is coming out. So when it came to the point where I started talking, I was actually developed my talking very quickly. I mean, I'm now a public speaker on this podcast. I do a lot of talking, so I've caught up and then some. I was looking at all of the things on your website, and I think your website alone kind of helps break the myth of what the the expectations around people with special needs in general are capable of accomplishing. Like, I watched you play the spoons and play the piano and play your guitar, and I was like, that's that's incredible. Like, you're very, very talented, and I think there's a myth around that, that special needs people can't perform to the same level, but watching you do those things, you're 10 times the musicianist I would ever be if I started even practicing, I feel like. like. Well, thank you. I mean, that raises another interesting point, actually. It's one thing to label kids with special needs. You're focusing on what they can't do and the extra support they need to become normal, 
to perform to a normal level, so to speak, in certain expected areas. But we don't think about what happens when those needs are met or going beyond that, other areas that the special needs and the support they receive doesn't cover, like looking at their strengths and what they can do. Because getting a diagnosis like autism does have stigma attached to it. People think, well, it's diagnosed based on what a person can't do. So they think, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. But there's a whole other side to autistic people about the strengths that we have and the abilities that we have and can develop, which is ignored far too much in my opinion. And that's one of the reasons I focus on the positive aspects of being autistic. I don't deny that we have, that we require some accommodations. I'm not questioning that at all. It's just when you put that to one side, when you put us in a context that we do enjoy, a context where we can excel, think about what we can do. Yeah. So let's continue in that motion because you have said that you're focused on the positive aspects of being autistic and you want to give people hope for the future. So mm. to be blunt, what are what are the positive aspects of being autistic? <laughs> And I've already mentioned the attention to detail uh, There's our focus as well. So when we want to do something, we can really get stuck into it. And it takes a lot to distract us from it. And more, even if you do manage to distract us from it, it can be very upsetting. <laughs> it's kind of like thinking, like, imagine if you had a deadline for Monday and you've just got to get a piece of work done. I mean, it's not as if we put deadlines on ourselves, but that's when our, where our train of thought is. That's where our momentum is when it comes to thinking. And I guess if you use that analogy, we build up a lot of momentum in that train of thought. So when we get distracted, it's not only much harder to come back to where we were, but it's more upsetting when we get distracted from what we were doing in the first place. And because of that, developing from that, uh, what's called special interests, or what sometimes referred to as restricted interests, and I don't like the last term, restricted interests, as much because what we don't have as far as breadth goes in terms of interests, we more than make up for in depth. So mm. it's common for autistic people to learn everything they can about a specific topic. I mean, who wouldn't want to become a world expert in a very specific or niche topic? I mean, we need those people in the world. Absolutely. Um, to touch on that, your, your bio said that you know a lot more about Monty Python than most people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would say they're definitely the life of Brian is definitely my favorite film, and yeah, I reference it more than I should. <laughs> how come? It, I'm just curious. How come it's your favorite film? I mean, it just is. I mean, it was written in 1979, but it really touches on themes that are still very relevant today. I mean, it was actually very controversial when it first came out, and it was banned in loads of places. I mean. If you take one look at the film, you can see why. I mean, there's also, you also pile in a load of ridiculousness into it as well. I mean, take the stoning <laughs> scene near the beginning, for example. So there's a man about to be stoned. And back in the time, women weren't allowed to go to stonings. Um, hmm. So the entire, so they had to get all women there in fake beards. But the cast of Monty Python was predominantly male. So you have to get men dressed up as women, dressed up as men. <laughs> <laughs> when they're accusing someone of throwing stones early on it's like you can't blow the, you can't throw stones until i blow this whistle and then someone throws a stone early and then the guy says who was it and they're like, shay, shay, shay. And they're like hum, 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 hum. 
Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the film in a long time, but just even the description of men posing as women who pose as men, like it's just, yeah. it gets me smiling and giggling again all over again. I think it's, your approach is really encouraging and, and inspiring because the, the restrictions that you talk about that come with a diagnosis, we, we often think, oh, can't, can't, can't. I think that's rampant in our world a little bit in general. Like what would we be capable of if people focused on their strengths and what they're really good at instead of what they can't do? And it seems like if we could make those accommodations for more people, especially autistic or special needs people, we would be well ahead of the curve. Like when you talk about your hyper, about being hyper-focused, I hear someone who's exceptionally productive yeah, and usually when well, when it comes to employers, certainly in this country, if you say that you need help in the workplace, employers are obliged by law to put to consider reasonable adjustments. So I heard of a case when I was doing a show once, so a man from a company approached me. He was saying how he helped his autistic colleague manage well, make the most of his potential. So it's saying that his colleague struggled and so he took him to one side and asked what they could do to help him maximize his potential because they could tell he was anxious and he was struggling at work. And the three things they come up with to help this employee was, firstly, they gave him his own parking space. So he had the same parking space every day and didn't have any of the anxiety associated with finding a parking space first thing in the morning. When he got to the office, he had that much less anxiety. Secondly, it was an open plan, hot desking office, which is all the rage these days. And he had his own desk in a corner of the room. So again, that much more certainty, fewer distractions, that helped as well. And thirdly, his colleagues were only allowed to speak to him during certain times of the day, which meant that for the rest of the day, he was able to get on with his work completely undisturbed by his colleagues. And these three simple adjustments meant that he was doing the work of four people. Oh my God, four. So he was just with those adjustments, he was able to do the work of what four other employees would do. Exactly. And those adjustments don't cost anything to put into place. And yet it's made the world of difference for this autistic man. Imagine like if there are other similar reasonable adjustments for everybody in the workplace, like even if you're not autistic, the difference might not be as stark, but still imagine how much more productive everybody would be if, everyone was allowed small, reasonable adjustments. Yeah, they don't, that's, I think the key word is they're small, reasonable adjustments. And in my mind, the benefit to the individual obviously was great in terms of stress reduction and anxiety, but the benefits to the company to make those small adjustments to see him do, be that much more productive and do that much more work is astounding. Like I was following along the story and I was like, okay, okay, four people? Like, that's incredible. Sometimes people are unwilling to put in these reasonable adjustments. It's, sometimes it's as simple as just asking, like, what can we do to help you? Because obviously, sometimes people know, like, these things are really stopping me from working to my full potential. If you could just change that, that'd be great. But another reason is if they think, well, if I give this person reasonable adjustments, I have to adjust things to everybody else as well. But isn't that a good thing? Surely if you could make small adjustments for each person in the workplace and they become that much more productive, surely arbitrary systems like hot desking, for example, 
may turn out just get rid of the system instead. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how little we're willing to to adjust, to make small adjustments, because we're afraid of, like you said, that loophole that, oh, if we make small adjustments here or small adjustments there, we're going to have to adjust for everybody. But we're we're not talking about like moving, moving a whole building. Like we're mm-hmm. talking about small things like maybe moving a desk or maybe I would imagine like allowing someone to listen to headphones if that's not something like the office allows. I know that's probably an arbitrary example, but mm-hmm. um when you talk about productivity, that's something else I think where like you break the mold too. You've written two books. Mm-hmm. Like most most people don't write any books. So what what motivated that and how did that come about? Well, okay, so my first book came about It's Raining Cats and Dogs. So it focuses on the fact that autistic people have a very literal way of thinking. So idioms, metaphors and other expressions as a child, I simply didn't understand them because I take everything very literally and I just didn't understand the fact that it wasn't supposed to be taken literally. I mean, the first book's entitled It's Raining Cats and Dogs, but you don't literally see it raining cats and dogs. You don't see <laughs> cats and dogs falling out the sky. So obviously this is confusing to me as a child. So what we did to help me understand this is we had an exercise book in which I wrote down the confusing phrasal expression I drew a picture of the first thing that came to my mind, and then my support system wrote the true meaning below. So this started when I was seven years old, but I could easily learn like this expression means that, that expression means that. I was very good at rote learning like that. So I learned a load of common expressions, but not only did it help me to understand the complexities of the English language, but it also helped other people around me to understand the autistic way of thinking. So that was the basis behind my first book, It's Raining Cats and Dogs. And that became increasingly well, more popular throughout my time at school. Like, this is how I think. This is what you need to do. This is the small change you need to make so that I understand you that much more clearly. Hmm. And and what was your um, your second book about? It was called, I have it written down here it's somewhere. Cattle of Fish. That's right. Yeah. A different kettle of fish was about, I wrote this while I was at university and it was about a journey I took from the, my comfort zone within university, about a, a day in the life of going into central London for the day and just ex- into the hustle and bustle and just giving a more detailed insight into how the autistic mind works, really. That's what it's all about. Super, super cool. I mean, like I said, I don't, I not a lot of people write have the motivation to write books or you hear people be like I have a lot of friends who are writers and in the arts and they're like oh I need to write more or I want to make a film and they don't do it so I think that's really impressive and kudos to you and I think it helps too like with that positive aspect that hope that you're talking about I'm curious if we go back to when you were younger and you've touched on this throughout our discussion but you say that the social skills and the social interaction parts are more challenging for people who are autistic. So how did you navigate that or um, adapt more of your social skills? Well, I mean, the simple answer is with difficulty. I mean, I still right. did friends when I was at school, but obviously it's as if like the part of the brain where it comes to understanding other people and developing social skills I mean it's more social skills are not as much of a priority for me 
as they were for everybody else, especially as a young child. I'm told that I was much more interested in understanding the environment around me and thinking things from like there's me interacting with the world, whereas for other people, obviously being able to interact with other people and make friends is a very important part of life. But as I said, it's not just not as high up on the priority list for autistic children. So obviously we're at a significant disadvantage by the time we reach school. And obviously, uh, as I said, I had to be explicitly taught social skills. I had support assistance and speech and language therapy so that I could bring my social skills up to a more normal extent. I mean, obviously this happened mostly when I was in primary school, but also while I was at secondary school as well to an extent. But the fact that I'm a good learner, I'd like to say that I'm a quick learner, meant that I was then catching up to other people. I mean, as I said, right now as an adult, if my social skills are a few years behind, that's not a problem, but it's more significant as a child. Hmm. That's interesting. I would never... Um... I, I haven't thought about that before, that it would be more significant socially. But yeah, the social world, if I think about being a teenager, your social world is a lot more challenging than it is as an adult. There's a lot more free choice when you're an adult, it feels like, on who yeah. you interact with and who you don't. And that was one of the reasons I think university was a more beneficial experience for me, because I was able to choose who I socialized with. I was able to, well, I had an understanding of social skills. So actually university living in halls away from my parents was well I mean you could argue it's kind of being thrown in the deep end but as I said I already had the foundation I already knew how to make friends and other people in the same situation as well and the fact that they were all new they're all at university trying to all make friends so yeah I certainly had an advantage going into university compared to what it was like at school Hmm. And it really gave me the opportunity to, well, should I say, refine my social skills, just to really work on them. Because in halls, like I had my own room, so I could be away from other people and I had that safe space. But at any time I wasn't literally in my bedroom, I could meet someone else. And yeah, it gave me lots of practice when it comes to social skills. I think it was a valuable experience. Yeah, it. It sounds like it. And and touching on that, having your own room and stuff, um, the list on your website mentions that sensory difficulties and sensitivities are um, very challenging as well. So I imagine being able to have your own space and quiet helps a lot, that loud noises and stuff like that, depending on where you fall on the spectrum, could be very jarring. Yeah. Many autistic people do find it beneficial to have their own space where they can more mentally decompress and process everything that's going on. I wouldn't say I uh, sensory wise, I don't wouldn't say that affects me as much as it does other autistic people. I mean, I do wear earplugs when going to gigs, for example. But as I said, most of the time I'm just that bit more in tune with the world than neurotypical people, obviously not in a social sense as such, but in terms of what's going on around me. But for other autistic people, this is tuned up even more to the extent where, well, obviously it borders on sensory processing disorder as well. So obviously just having some, having a safe space where you can just decompress and bring your stress levels down is very important. And you could say for anyone, but particularly for autistic mm -hmm. people, I would say. 
Yeah, I would agree with you that most people need a, a place or a time where they can decompress. Um, mm. But I would imagine if you're very um, sensitive to sensory things in your environment, like personally, I I don't know if you guys have Costco in England, but it's like a big box warehouse store. It gets very busy. I personally get very overwhelmed just going mm. to Costco and I would have to be like, I'll wait outside. Um, so I can only imagine how how challenging that would be for someone who has those types of sensory difficulties and sensitivities. Autistic people. I mean, some places trialed the idea of an autism hours, so like they wouldn't have background music on, and it would be for autistic people so that they could shop. I don't know how many schemes there are there if they're still ongoing, but it did become a thing for a little bit from a few shops but yeah imagine if instead of going to a huge Costco or a huge superstore imagine if you felt that sense of being overwhelmed in a much smaller shop right yeah the claustrophobia that comes with that especially if you're being um the noise coming in as well would make the space feel a lot smaller bombardment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think other people can relate to some extent but it's obviously just amplified for autistic people and we don't Either we don't have an off switch for that kind of thing, or we don't know how to get out of a situation. Like if you're in the middle of a big shop, it's going to take a minute or two to get out. So what do you do? But whereas with neurotypical people, especially in social situations, I find you have an idea of what to do. You almost have social get out of jail free cards, which I'd like one. (laughs) Yeah, well... I think we all deserve social get out of jail free cards once in a while. I mean, even neurotypical people are not always on their on their best behavior for sure. Um, I was a late night bartender for many years, and I have have seen neurotypical people definitely far from their best behavior and get in, get out of jail free cards. So, yeah, um, yeah, that raises an interesting point actually. When you mentioned you worked as a bartender. I mean, when it comes to finding jobs, it's good to find jobs suited to our strengths. I mean, especially for autistic people, because I mean, one of the things you'll see about autistic people is that they say we have an uneven or spiky profile. So there's some things which we're particularly bad at, but on the other hand, we're particularly good at other things. So if you think of just like, this is all the skill sets that everybody has. Well, I'm trying to do a straight line on the screen, but you get my point. Yeah. <laughs> but for autistic people, instead of being more of a straight line with a few bumps, we're like really good at some things, really bad at others. So right. In the case of being jobs as a bartender, like, I mean, certainly in the UK, it's considered quite an entry level role to work as a bartender or work in Starbucks or something like that. But I'd struggle with that more than I, much more than I do for my current job as a data analyst, which, as I said, requires my so it requires my attention to detail and just ability to interpret code and understand complex databases and numbers. So it's like, just got to redefine what an entry level job is for autistic people and make sure that you're making the most of our strengths. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, and this might um, be an odd question, but do most autistic people have similar strengths? Like, are they more geared, like you said, towards numbers and science and that sort of thing? I'd say, well, I mean, that's a stereotype. We're all more geared towards like scientific things and numbers, but obviously being mindful of the autistic community as a whole. I mean, obviously just having a diagnosis of autism, we can still vary 
a lot. I mean, we've got a number of traits in common, as I've already talked about, but you've got to bear in mind that autistic, autism affects people very differently because just having below par social skills can be for a whole myriad of different reasons and affect people very differently. So, I mean, it's one thing to have the stereotype, but you've got to be aware that, or I mean, there's a saying that once you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. It's just another yeah. dimension in the whole spectrum of being human. Yeah, I like that because that's that's partly why I asked the question was to kind of break apart that stereotype that that might be something people are who are listening to or might think, okay, well, very linear, very logical. Oh, obviously science, math, because we tend to pigeonhole people in general as a society. So I like that, you know, you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, you know, everybody's just like you've met one person, mm. you've met one person, like we're a very diverse group of humans. So it's, it's like the, it's like just any other stereotype, assuming Asian people are exceptionally intelligent or assuming right. that any British person is addicted to drinking tea. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, but very true. Very true. Well, as we um, start getting closer to our time together, I'm curious about um, two things. So number one, um, one of my personal focuses, and I think a focus of this podcast is how can we be a better ally or a venue for people who might be misunderstood or, or there's a lot of myths around. So what, what would you say to people? How can we, how can we be good allies? What can we do to, to support people who aren't neurotypical? I think it's really just comes down to being a good human being trying to understand mm. an individual for who they are like yes a diagnosis or other information about them might give you some clues but I wouldn't take something like that as gospel like not every autistic person is going to be just like me for example it can help maybe help get take you in the right direction but uh, you've just got to appreciate each individual as an individual human being. I, mean, I love sounds, that. It sounds simple, but like the implications are quite profound. Yeah, it is really profound. Like as soon as you said that, I was like, yep, that'll probably be a quote that we <laughs> use from him, like moving forward in the future. That is very profound. And I think something we lose sight of because we like to think in boxes. It makes mm -hmm. us feel safe, right? Like, um, but to just use basic compassion and kindness goes a long way and looking at everybody as individuals and unique. Um, and then if anything, if you were to expand on the autistic people lack empathy myth, you say from, you could say from that, well, neurotypical people are supposed to have lots of empathy. So why can't you be more understanding towards us? Hmm. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting as well. I think we can all be more understanding. Absolutely. Um, and then the other thing we like to do on have a little insight is I know we've touched on a lot of different things, but obviously one of the keywords in the title of the show is insight. So if there's one piece of insight or hope that you could leave with um, neurotypical people, people diagnosed with autism, what, what would that be? 
I mean, if I were to just to say one thing, I mean, I'd say, well, there are two sides to the autism coin. Like you mostly see one side of the negatives, the diagnosis of things we can't do, but there's a whole other side to us. Like look at the things that we can do and well, just see for yourself what that has to offer. Yeah, I, I like that. Well, um, thank you. Thank you so much, Michael, for, for coming on the show and for educating me and, and giving people more insight who might be listening on autism. Um, if people are interested in getting in touch with you or they want to learn more about you, where is the best place for people to find information about you? Yeah, well, I mean, thank you very much for having me, Jenny. I mean, well, the best place to get in touch with me, you can find me on social media or look at my website, www.michaelbarton.org.uk. That was Michael, everybody. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is always so humbling, and I'm so grateful that people like you come on and share their story with us. I learned a ton during this episode about autism and preparing for this episode that we didn't even touch on that I'd like to share with you now. According to the CDC, autism affects 1 in 54 children. That's 1.85% of our population, 1 in 33 for boys, and 1 in 145 for girls. In Canada, that number is 1 in 66 children. And that's astounding to me. I had no idea that the numbers were like that. The other thing is after Michael and I hit stop on our recording, he shared something really interesting with me that I would like to share with you now. He said to me, you know, autism is just one thing that defines me. There are a lot of words that you can use to define me. I'm a dog owner. I'm an author. I'm a musician. I'm a data analyst. And I should be able to choose which one I use at which time. And that's something that's come up a lot doing this podcast is labels and language and how we use them. So just a little insight, a little thought to leave you with as we come to a close today. So thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, family member, coworker, or anyone you think might benefit from listening to it. We are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I would also greatly appreciate if you could take 30 seconds out of your day to either subscribe on Apple or Spotify, leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get the message out there and reach more and more people. In closing, we are Have a Little Insight. My name is Jenny, your host. I hope you have a fantastic week out there, everybody, and I look forward to connecting with you next time. Take care.